Welcome to the Food Intelligence Podcast brought to you by TasteWise. My name is Ron. Here with me as always is Miriam. And today, should I say it? Should I? I'm going to say it. Today, we're going to get saucy. <laughs> uh, this is the saucy episode because we're going to be talking about sauces and dressing. So uh, I'm going to show myself out because that was really my worst pun yet. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. All right. So we um, had a few conversations both uh, internally and with customers. Uh, and I think we might have covered some of this on uh, TasteWise Live uh, a while ago about sauces and dressings in general. And also how, uh, because you use a sauce or use a dressing to sort of um, extend or customize a dish, uh, you can use them as a lens to take a look at bigger trends that are happening in food and beverage. Uh, so based on some of those conversations that we've had recently, we thought it would be interesting to take a look at uh, sauces and dressings today, uh, both in uh, where do we think this, uh, these trends are going to go and also how, does, how do we think it affects uh, food and beverage um, at large. Um, so usually, as Miriam always says, we start at the beginning, but today we're looking to the future. We're going to start with the future because um, I know you've been talking a lot about this uh, recently, Miriam. Where do you see uh, sauces and dressings and where do you see these trends kind of going to in the next, uh, let's say, two to five years? Yeah, excellent question, Ren. Um, I love sauces and dressings. Condiments generally, I think, are a really interesting category. And like you were saying, we've had a lot of um, requests and interest around this category to cover it a little bit more in depth. Um, and I think starting with this kind of future look is a really great way to, to think about the category and where it stands today and, and what to expect from it. Um, I also want to add, just as some context before we dive in, which I always do, I realize about myself, every time we talk about these trends, I'm like, first, 10 minutes of context. Um, but I, I do want to say that one of the ways I've heard sauces and dressings described recently is as a flavor enhancer. If we think through at the, to the very core of what a condiment or dressing or sauce really is, it's something that amps up the flavor on the plate right? Let's just put it simply, plainly, that's what it is. So if we think about that, um, it actually says a lot more about uh, what consumers are thinking, eating, drinking, demanding, craving uh, outside of its category, right? So sauces and dressings, as you very aptly said at the start, can point us to some really interesting directions in the market broadly. So let's think through next two to five years. Uh, the last two to five years, crazy amounts of innovation, crazy amounts of change. Um, I think we can expect the same thing in the next two to five years, um, which sounds sort of like an arbitrary number, right? Two to five. But if we think about product development cycles as they stand now, um, that's actually, you know, ideas that people are thinking about now. And um, this is kind of the, the now is the time to start thinking about them um, for, you know, the products and the iterations and things that are coming up ahead. So definitely two to five sounds like a, a ways from now. But for those who aren't working in new product development, um, just so you know that that's kind of uh, definitely product cycles right now. Of course, we want a world where that's faster, um, but definitely is, is useful to think about it now. So um, we're going to go through, I think, five different topics today um, to that are going to be guiding the, the future of condiments and sauces and dressings. Um, when I say condiment, I really just mean, I mean sauces and dressings, but I mean anything that you can add on to um, a plate, oftentimes in liquid form, um, that kind of enhances it, right? So I'll just, I'll say condiment here, but what I, what I'm talking about is sauces and dressings. Um, 
So we'll start with the very first one. Um, and this one is all about flavor. So we just talked about flavor enhancers, um, flavor profiles. Sweet is actually the dominating flavor profile for sauces and dressings in the US right now. Um, so today we'll, we'll talk about US data, but a lot of these trends, in fact, I would say most, if not all of them, um, are also relevant across the European markets that we're tracking, um, kind of these global macro trends. Um, so sweet is definitely the dominating flavor profile. And Ron, I'm going to put you on the spot what is your favorite sweet sauce or dressing? Sweet or sweet adjacent? I would say maybe like, um, I don't know if, if you'd necessarily call it sweet, but maybe like a teriyaki uh, mm. sauce. Yeah, uh, yeah. for sure. And the reason I ask is to kind of call attention to the fact that um, sauce and, dress and dressings are often more than one thing, right? And they can be sweet as the dominating flavor, but there's also a lot there, right? You could have like a smoky teriyaki, you could have, you know, something mixed in that's also a little bit um, salty, right? There's all, all different kinds of combinations here. And that's exactly what we're thinking is going to be coming in the category. So um, spicy, actually, is continuing its takeover of the American market. Um, we, you know, we've seen this across different categories, everything from you know, the more expected to things like cocktails, right, where spicy has not historically been a particularly big player. Um, and we're seeing that spicy is up 20% in consumer interest since the start of COVID for sauces and dressings. Um, and we're using that start of COVID benchmark as kind of, you know, you know, we have like BC and BCE or AD and whatever BC and all of that. So this, in the food and beverage world, it's pre-COVID and post-COVID. Um, <laughs> so it's up 20% in interest. So we're spicy for sure on the table for, for flavor changes, definitely worth, uh, worth watching. But I think what's most important is these crossovers that we're talking about. So things like spicy honey, for example, um, right. There's that sweet and that spiciness combined and spicy honey is something we've seen a lot of, um, you know, traction in the market, a lot of buzz or, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> buzz around spicy honey is an excellent phrase take a second to think about it if you haven't gotten it yet bees okay yeah. Daniel, jokes are so much like uh, <laughs> jokes are so much funnier when you explain them miriam just kind of like as a lesson for life <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm really uh, doing well here. Um, so things like spicy honey, of course, um, are going to continue trending as well as other unexpected pairings that I think involve spiciness. So, um, you know, spicy and smoky, spicy and sweet, uh, spicy and salty, right? All of these different types of, of spiciness. Um, I think we're also, and we're going to talk about this more in just a moment, but um, uh, we're going to see regional spicy sauces and condiments from across the globe emerge into the mainstream and be part of those fusion moments. Um, so we'll talk more about kind of global influences in just a moment, but I think that that's a, a good one to, to note. Um, so things like that might be, for example, um, which is a, you know, a big one for the Israelis in our office, um, harissa, things like that. Um, but we'll talk more about that in just a moment. So I yep, think our first category... Is is also um, what you say when you don't want to share something with your kids. It's like, oh, you can't have some of this snack. No, it's, it's too spicy. <laughs> it's really spicy. <laughs> it's really spicy. Like, I'm, I'm going to have to eat all of it. <laughs> it's too spicy for you. Yeah. Um, it'd be interesting to track flavor profiles in kids' foods and see if spicy ever makes a dent in that market. Um, I don't imagine that it would, but interesting. Um, okay, any final thoughts on that before we go to our next category? Uh, no, let's go for it. Cool. Okay. Um, so the next one is citrus and tropical flavors. Um, so both of those are making a splash. So kind of continuing on our flavor 
uh, our flavor journey this morning, um, we're thinking about how citrus and tropical flavors will continue to influence uh, condiments. And if we think broadly, uh, citrus and tropical flavors are absolutely making a splash in lots of other categories as well. That's why I, I um, really love talking about condiments because they have so much crossover. Um, and we'll talk maybe a little bit later about the crossover with beverages because um, there is a lot of really interesting parallels there. Um, but citrus and tropical flavors, of course, in in cocktails, beverages, even beers, things like that in the alcoholic space, the non-alcoholic space, for sure, um, but definitely primary in the condiment space. Um, yuzu, which if you recall, was on everyone's 2022 predictions list, including our own, um, continues to be a fan favorite. It's definitely grown the way we expected it to in the market over the course of the year so far. Um, and that's a great example of where it, kind of a direction that, that things are heading in. So Yuzu is um, already up 43% year over year for the condiment category. And we're seeing Yuzu paste as an actual uh, kind of a really interesting emerging trend in home cooking, and that's up 92% year over year. So um, something that started in uh, kind of high-end retail, a little bit in food service, we've seen that transition even in the course of this year all the way into home cooking, um, which is a really great indicator for trend longevity um, when we see kind of crossover between those different uh, kind of moments of innovation. Um, and citrus is really great because it can elevate existing sauces. It's something that you can add to, for example, like a mayo, a citrus mayo, a yuzu mayo. I have one of those in my fridge right now. It's delicious. Um, and uh, it can also be the centerpiece of something completely new, right? Uh, maybe like a citrus vinaigrette that has some sort of interesting twist on it. Um, and citrus is one of those uh, really interesting categories because uh, there are so many known varietals of citrus, but there are also a lot of unknown ones, right? Yuzu, I would reckon, was not particularly well known in the mainstream until quite recently. Um, so when you're thinking about, uh, we can, if you hail back to that, I think it was one of our first episodes with uh, Rachel, who at the time was with Freshly and, and now has moved on to other adventures. Um, she was speaking about how when you're introducing something new to the market, um, it's oftentimes good to pair it with something that's more familiar. Um, and this example of citrus condiments is a really great example of that. If you're playing with a new citrus fruit um, or a new citrus flavor profile, pairing it with something that's already understood in the market, like mayo, for example, right? That's a winning combination. Consumers know mayo. They love mayo, mm -hmm. right? They have it in their fridge. And if they're willing to try something new, they want to do it in a way that's a little bit more accessible. So I think building on that um, kind of known law in food and beverage right now, um, we're going to continue seeing citrus and tropical flavors, and especially those that are a little bit unfamiliar and unknown, continue in the market. So you were talking about yuzu being, uh, what was it, 40-something uh, percent up? Yeah, 43% for, 43%. For just for the category. So 43% up uh, year over year for the category. So for the category being condiments, and you are comparing the share of conversations within condiments that I uh, mentioned yuzu, right? That's yeah, that's exactly. what you mean compared to the category. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when we think, when I say things like, um, you know, 43% up for the category, I mean, consumer interest, which we track through social media, which is a really excellent proxy for consumption and behavior, right? Mm -hmm. um, which to put it very simply, it means people are eating it and they're talking about it and they're sharing it with the world. Um, so we're seeing that the rate of that is actually 43% higher than it was last year, um, which again means people are eating it 43% more than they were uh, a year ago. Yeah. In, uh, in regards specifically to this category, this is, um, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm stressing this point because it's really interesting to always look at something compared to the category that you're actually operating in. In this case, we're talking totally. about uh, condiments. Um, and also the, how does it look like when you compare it to the entire world of uh, food and beverage. Because uh, sometimes that will tell a different story. I think we were talking about um, people going to plant-based dairy for protein needs 
Um, how does that look like in food and beverage, total food and beverage versus just in the dairy uh, category? Then in the dairy category, obviously still more people in an absolute number uh, perspective are going to, uh, you know, just animal-based um, milk or, uh, or dairy. Uh, but more and more people are seeking protein in these plant-based dairy alternatives. And you can also only um, uh, get that insight if you're comparing both to the whole world of uh, food and beverage, the entire you know scale of conversations, and also just specifically the category that you're trying to operate in. So this looks like another one of those uh, interesting examples. And then you talked about how yuzu paste is emerging in uh, in home cooking. Um, so is that still just relevant to that category, or are you just looking at how popular user pace was last year in home cooking and and you're looking at comparing it to this year? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so user pace is one of the, it's an emerging trend. It's a really early trend, meaning that mm-hmm. um, there's not a whole lot of people who are talking about this and engaging with this yet, but it is showing early signals. Um, so it, within the category of condiments, it's showing that 92% year over year growth. If we looked at it just in the total of food and beverage, it's actually not moving that fast at all because it's so emerging, right? So it's specifically yeah. kind of this niche category within um, sauces and dressings within condiments, um, which I think speaks to your point, right? If you if you were looking at it in the broad scheme of things, you might miss it. But if you're looking at it within condiments, um, it's actually really interesting. All right, cool. So we talked about um, sweet kind of dominating, but spicy being up and coming. Uh, we talked about mm-hmm. uh, citrus and, uh, and tropical flavors. Um, and uh, what are we looking at next? So next, we're going to look at everybody's favorite category of the moment, at least in the office, um, botanicals. So botanicals um, are kind of, I've been saying the word interesting a million times today, but it's its true. It's all very interesting. Um, and botanicals themselves are a really um, kind of cool category to explore because they are so, they can be seen as so niche, um, right? The way that they are sourced, the way that they're created, um, their applications are not as widespread as other things, right? And um, they're kind of, if you think about it, not as versatile as condiments and sauces, right? They're kind of the the opposite in that way. Um, But we're actually Mm -hmm. seeing a lot of use for them, um, surprisingly so. So botanicals are up um, in consumer interest. So again, sourcing that from social conversations, um, almost 30% year over year in consumer interest um, Mm -hmm. within sauces and dressings. So um, we're seeing applications within, again, condiments at a rate 30% higher than the previous year. Um, And we expect this to keep growing as people become more and more aware of the category's applications outside of the realm of beverages. So beverages are really that proving ground where botanicals have kind of come of age. Um, You know, gins, especially people were introduced to the idea of botanicals and what they can add. Um, Bitters, right? Uh, Even, you know, non-alcoholic drinks are starting to, to use botanicals as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're seeing that people are are mapping that over to uh, to condiments, which is an example, as I said before, of this kind of really interesting parallel between botanicals and beverages, um, which hopefully we'll have some time to speak about later. Um, so examples of trending botanicals that um, are worth noting within condiments, um, shiso leaves, which are a Japanese relative of mint. So the distilled kind of oils out of that, I've been seeing some of those. Again, an, a very early trend, but something worth watching. Um, mm-hmm. Dandelion, things like that. Um, so we're going to be seeing some more botanical infused condiments uh, over the next year. It's a small trend, so I don't expect it to be, um, you know, particularly industry shaking yet, but I think it's definitely on its way. Um, and especially because of the the health benefits that are associated with botanicals, um, right? There's a lot of kind of gut health things there. Um, and we'll talk about functional health in a moment, but uh, I think that's going to be what's driving the trend. Yeah, I think you're, you're always making a bet, right? Between the uh, kind of really established 
trends and trends that are growing very, very rapidly, like sometimes something will, like Yuzu, right? Like uh, it was nowhere and then all of a sudden it was everywhere, right? So it became uh, a very, um, like very significant trend. Uh, and some things are, are going to be more niche, interesting. Um, maybe they will lend themselves more to more gourmet products or more like high-end mm-hmm. products uh, that are that are very, very specific. Like uh, the the other day you shared uh, internally on our uh, Slack channel. Um, what was it that you were drinking? It was like a cold tea or something? Ah, yeah, yeah. The um, That was actually, I believe, botanicals. It was um, CBD and L-theanine infused. Um, wow, I can look it up. Uh, it was, it was. first of all, it was delicious. Um, but yeah, definitely. It was one of those that had like a lot of different in- infusions within it. Um, yeah, and it listed like on the can the specific um ingredients that were in it and also the yeah. benefit of them which tied actually like we were comparing it to our consumer motivations and uh and the benefits in our platform just to uh, both to to double check them and also to see kind of this is how um this is how a lot of this research ends up uh, working in play right like they were appealing to the things that you were specifically looking for in uh, in your drink so um, exactly. Yeah, and it, I can give you, I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll walk, because I do think it is a really good example. Um, and again, that kind of beverage mapping to condiment, because it is relevant for our discussion here. Um, yep. So CBD, uh, they called out as having mental and physical relief, right? And if you think mm-hmm. about those words, mental and physical relief, uh, that could mean any number of things. But the, the fact that they called it out specifically in concert with this ingredient, um, I think adds a lot of consumer intrigue. Um, mm-hmm. Holy basil, uh, which is an herb, and also you could argue a botanical as well. So apropos to right now, um, with mind and body integration, green tea with energy and circulation boost, L-theanine, which we could do a whole other podcast on, um, for stress relief and cognitive aid, and Himalayan salt for uh, hydration. So if you think about the kind of realm of functional, maybe we'll talk about that next, um, functional benefits there. Um, yeah. They did a really good job on that branding. I'll, I'll tell you what that brand was just so we can call them out. Um, it's called uh, Crunchy Hydration, their Elevate line. I had the right. lime flavor if anyone is looking for a lunchtime recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So uh, we, you mentioned uh, that the reason to turn to a lot of these botanicals is um, very specific kind of health benefits, uh, which I think is also one of the points that you wanted to cover here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, if anybody has been listening to the podcast, uh, you know that this is something we talk about all the time, but it bears repeating again and again and again. This is one of the defining trends of our uh, our time. Um, and I cannot state that too strongly. Functional health is something that um, is really important to consumers and will continue to be so and is, is definitely shaping um, both, you know, innovation for the next two to five years, but definitely beyond that as well. Uh, we're seeing a lot of kind of mentality shifts beyond just uh, new products. So um, we're going to be continuing to see the rise of specific health benefits um, within condiments and dressings, um, both for you know things like functional health, but also nutri- actual nutritional aspects. Um, condiments are interesting in that they allow for customization. I was part of a panel recently where um, I heard uh, condiments described as kind of this last touch moment of customization, right? It's oftentimes the last thing that consumers will add to their plate. Um, they have some sort of, you know, flavor experience in mind and they want to add something to kind of amp it up a notch, whether it's adding spiciness to it, right, as we talked about before, or, uh, you know, sweet, et cetera, whatever. Um, but it also adds customization, not just for flavor and uh, experience in that way, but for customization around health needs, right? Um, so like gut health or, uh, you know, um, brain health, right? You name it. Um, and I think we're going to start seeing condiments that are tailored 
and marketed specifically for their functional health benefits as something that you can add easily to your plate, especially in home cooking, um, but also within food service. I think we're we're entering into the age where, um, you know, this example we've been giving a lot on the pod about kind of that gut health support salad, right? Instead of a, a healthy salad, people will be looking specifically for salads with ingredients for gut health. Um, yeah. So we're entering into an age where, you know, the vinaigrette that pairs with that salad is specifically described and, and formulated to also support gut health as well, right? Maybe fermentation or, or any number of things. Um, so I think that that's really, really interesting. I think it is a little bit of a tricky uh, concept uh, because, you know, when we think about, for example, the category that is uh, very much playing with functional health is, is beverages. Again, not to kind of beat a dead horse here, but um, I hate that expression. Not to belabor the point, um, but, uh, you know, beverages are are both customizable in a lot of ways, right? But they're also really portable and convenient. And, and condiments are not that way yet right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to pack some, some might, right? You might pack your favorite condiment with you for the day and kind of add it to whatever you want. But oftentimes if you're going out to eat, you're looking for condiments readily available at the restaurant, things like that. Um, or, you know, if you're late running late to work, you're going to be grabbing that iced coffee to go. You're not going to be grabbing like a packet of, of condiment, uh, to kind yeah. of boost your morning. Right. So I think, um, it's a little bit behind the curve in that way. Uh, but I think we will start to see it as part of part and parcel of, of, uh, you know, functionally oriented dishes in, in the next couple of years. Um, I also want to add that clean eating experiences. So things that are, um, based on whole ingredients, they don't have a lot of preservatives, things like that, processed ingredients, additives, et cetera. We're definitely already seeing those trends. So, um, for example, you know, dressings and sauces that have no preservatives and are explicitly called out as such are already up 35% um, this year in mm-hmm. consumer interest versus last year. Okay. So, so far in kind of our predictions for what's going to be big in the world of uh, yeah. sauces and, and dressings uh, over the next, let's say, five years, um, the flavor profile is crucial with uh, spicy being on the rise, um, the citrus and tropical flavors and their different applications. Um, and different uh, uh, motivations that drive us to them, uh, botanicals and their health benefits, um, and uh, the the specific uh, health benefits that um, right, that themselves. we were naming. Uh, yeah, not just in the sense of the botanicals, but also generally what drives you to add uh, that specific sauce or dressing uh, to to your dish. Yeah. Um, so finally, we'll talk about global flavor. So I mentioned this uh, kind of as part and parcel of the the first uh, kind of the spicy conversation, but um, global flavors for sure, kitchen travel, uh, these are all things that we've seen explode over the course of the past uh, two years, right? Pre-COVID, this was obviously of, of note for a lot of consumers, um, but we're seeing that this is expanding. Uh, you know, I think we did a really interesting report about this actually last year where we were talking about how when someone maybe used to go out for Indian food, um, and there are a lot of folks who still kind of lump um, these regional experiences and cultures together, but um, we're seeing definitely a rise towards people understanding, you know, uh, I'm not just going out for Indian food, I'm going out for uh, you know, Mumbai street food, or I'm going out for Carolyn Curry, or I'm going out for it, right? Like understanding how to, to break down um, these kind of massive categories more into their regions and the experiences and flavors within. Um, and kind of one of the really interesting switches that we've been watching is, is seeing that happen in home cooking, right? So people are 
um, using their kitchens or when, you know, when they go out using restaurant kitchens, but um, in this case for home cooking to explore other cultures. Um, and the genesis of this we very much saw was, you know, people were stuck at home during COVID and they weren't able to travel. They were looking for new and exciting ways to engage with other cultures, other ideas. Um, and cooking was definitely a way to do that. So um, even as the world, God willing, opens up more and we're able to travel and experience those places ourselves, I think we're going to continue to still see growth in these categories, right? As people's horizons expand um, and they, you know, let's say now have their favorite Carolyn Curry recipe, that's not going to go anywhere now. In fact, that's the interest in that is going to continue to rise. Um, so we're going to see that absolutely for uh, expansion and growth within the condiments category. So we're going to see things like um, regional specific sauces showing up on plates. And we'll see those for traditional traditional recipes, right? Or, or uh, dishes that are aligned with the, the region from where, uh, from where the condiment comes. Um, but yeah. we'll also see, I think, some fusion things, which are really interesting. So for example, um, amba, which is a kind of pickled mango uh, dressing, which is, uh, I think, Iraqi in in origin, um, something that's very, very popular in Israel. We're going to start seeing that um, emerge in the US mainstream. Um, we're going to be seeing things like, you know, uh, mole or different types of mole from different regions in Mexico. Uh, we'll mm-hmm. continue to see interest in gochujang, which is something that, um, you know, we've talked about a lot here on the pod. And um, I even have been seeing in, uh, you know, the recipe section of the New York Times lately and in uh, Trader Joe's, right? Like there's all different kinds of ways that these dressings are showing up um, in both in home kitchens and in retail. And I think we'll continue to see this expansion. Um, I want to spend just a moment on this idea of fusion. Um, So Amba, let's take that example. Okay, Amba, um, my fiance is is Israeli. He is crazy for Amba. Um, It's less to my taste. So we always have a lot of it that's not being used very quickly (laughs) in the kitchen. Um, And so my fiance has decided to start experimenting. You know, how can we apply Amba outside of the context of Middle Eastern cuisine? Um, how can we add it to, you know, a very simple salad and dress it up with some other sort of ingredient? And so I think as consumers become more familiar with these, quote unquote, unfamiliar or regional tastes in the mainstream, mm-hmm. um, I think they're going to start experimenting with it in their own way. So adding their own twists, uh, things like that. So it'll become a, a lot more common to see, um, you know, something like Amba on a, you know, even a quick service menu, something like that. Um, but again, we're talking two to five years down the road. I'm not expecting this tomorrow, but um, I do think that it's something to watch. One of the most interesting things that you had mentioned um, throughout these uh, kind of five different uh, predictions, so uh, kind of global flavors, health, uh, botanicals, um, citrus and tropical flavors, uh, and uh, and the flavor profiles, um, is you've drawn a lot of uh, similarities between condiments and beverages. Um, yeah. That's, that's really, really interesting. Um, and you had mentioned that uh, condiments are, are never or we don't think are uh, going to compete with beverages for on the convenience factor. Um, we're definitely seeing yeah. a lot of the motivations and needs that, uh, that align with beverages these days. Uh, like we were talking about uh, the, the drink uh, that uh, you had with your lunch the other mm-hmm. day. Um, <laughs> so a lot of these uh, things like... Um, um, uh, health benefits, functional health, uh, you know, immunity, all all that kind of stuff, and how it goes with beverages. Some of that transfers over to condiments, and we expect to see that continue to rise. Um, with uh, uh, the few minutes that uh, that we have left, I do want to talk about something different. Um, okay. So we made our kind of predictions. Uh, one of the associations that uh, a lot of us have with um, with sauces um, have to do with uh, big chain restaurants. Um, mm, yeah, and 
Um, I don't know if this is mostly an American thing, um, but many times you will have a certain type of flavor that is associated, you know, with uh, Wendy's, with McDonald's, with Chick-fil-A, with, uh, with a certain yeah. chain. And it becomes less about what's in that sauce, but more, um, this is a McDonald's sauce, right? Um, and I think a funny example is what happened with uh, Szechuan sauce after I was mm-hmm. featured on an episode of Rick and Morty, uh, an animated show. Uh, and then people just went crazy for it. And it's, you know, it's just a McDonald's sauce, right? Sauce, right? Um, right. Obviously, they were able to capitalize on on a marketing campaign. Um, but um, but it was, I think, a really interesting example. So do you see um, a lot of these uh, kind of cult favorite sauces that start in food service? Do you see them transferring over to to retail at all? Or is that something that's already happening? That is an excellent, excellent, excellent question. Um, and I think the answer is ab- absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head as well about the role that sauces and condiments can play beyond just flavor, right? That they offer some sort of connection to something. Um, mm-hmm. The Rick and Morty example is, is excellent. So if we think through, um, I guess there's two ways to answer this. The first would be, you know, cult favorite from a chain side, right? Which is kind of how you phrase the question. But I think there's also yeah. an answer here that's more on a local level, right? Um for example, uh, and I did not do this on purpose, but uh, this is the perfect example. Um, last night, I went to a new burger restaurant that opened two blocks away from my house. Um, you know, I ordered my food on my phone, popped over to pick it up. And while I was waiting, um, they had a, uh, you know, an entire shelf of their famous, apparently I'd never been there before, but um, their famous hot sauce that was sitting on the counter. Um, and they were selling it, right? As just an, you know, they had the dishes on the menu, the burgers on the menu that use this hot sauce and some that didn't, but they recognize that some people might want it and they're asking for it enough. Um, and people are, you know, even cooking in their home kitchens and craving that this particular flavor that they're selling it by the bottle. And it was flying off the shelves. Um, and me, a completely brand new customer to this establishment, without even having tried the sauce, without even trying the burger, I wanted to experience what the people around me were experiencing. So I bought one. Um, And I was reflecting on that earlier today as I was preparing for this episode and saying, wow, my behavior is reflecting exactly what I'm seeing in the data and exactly what I'm seeing um, around questions like this. So I think that that's that's an excellent example. And we're seeing that... um, use of locally sourced sauces. So whether that means it's from, you know, the burger joint down the street, or if it means the ingredients are from kind of a local area, those are up 51% in the last year alone um, in terms of interest. So we're already seeing, of course, a movement towards local. Um, And again, those are very much based on usually kind of star products like this spicy sauce that I was just sharing. Mm -hmm. Um, But we've also seen on the kind of the other side of the coin, a big success for these cult favorite sauces. So you gave the example of the Sichuan sauce. um, You know, there's a lot of those. I have, you know, the Chick-fil-A sauce in my fridge right now. Um, Definitely, we're seeing an expansion of success for these retail, for these brands, quick service especially, but brands that are passing these cult favorite sauces into the retail space. I think we're going to continue seeing success for that. Um, But I think the question is, is it's less interesting to say, do we see this succeeding or not? The answer to that is yes. I think the more interesting question is why. Um, Why on earth is Sichuan sauce from McDonald's or Chick-fil-A sauce from Chick-fil-A, right? Like what what is interesting about that? And if I can just pop over to Chick-fil-A and get it, like why do I need to have a, a, you know, liter bottle of it or whatever in my fridge? Um, And I think the answer to that actually really speaks uh, to something really beautiful and eloquent about food. Um, That food is so much more uh, than flavor or health or all of the things that we talk about. All of that matters hugely, 
it, it will never stop mattering, right? And we know that flavor is king, health, sustainability, all of these things will be huge. Um, but what food does at its very root is it connects us to something else, right? It connects us to our bodies. It connects us to our families, our heritages, our neighbors. Uh, it's something that every single person, for the most part on this planet, has the privilege to do um, in some capacity, right? We wish that it was higher for, for money. But um, being able to use food as a way to connect ourselves to the world around us is, is really special. Um, and I think that this cult favorite question actually is about that, right? People want to feel, especially during COVID, they want to feel connected to something else. They want to feel connected to community. When I walked into that burger place, I wanted to feel like a part of this cool local neighborhood thing that was going on. And I wanted to try something new. Um, you know, so I think, I think there's something really interesting here about brands being able to extend this sense of community and belonging outside of their brick and mortar or even their delivery um, to consumer kitchens. And the really great thing here, aside from all the poetic rambling that I just said, but the really interesting thing here in the kind of the bottom line dollar is that um, that encourages consumer loyalty, right? Brand loyalty. Um, if I'm already eating Chick-fil-A sauce at home and I'm putting it on my salads or my burger or whatever, right? I'm a lot more likely um, to A, buy it again and B, return to Chick-fil-A and get some nuggets and, and add it to my kitchen rotation, right? So um, it kind of is a, a two-part answer that one, it's just brilliant in terms of marketing and like cons- uh, community building, but B, it's also really great for uh, for consumer loyalty and brand loyalty. So long story short, yes, uh, it will continue both <laughs> on a local and a chain level. Um, and I think it's a really, it's a really smart thing that reflects, I think what consumers are really wanting right now. Awesome. Love it. Um, I wonder how, you know, you working at TasteWise, uh, is directing your like purchases. Cause there's like every, every other thing that we, we talk about is like, oh yeah, I have that in my fridge right now. And I was like, I imagine I your fridge to just be like, you know, trend data, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. There's actually no food in there. It's just like, uh, you know, the matrix, the like streams yeah. of numbers. You just open my fridge and it's just... <laughs> yeah, forms into a, a Chick-fil-A sauce, like one liter bottle. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so I think the probably the last thing that uh, we want to, to talk about is um, kind of the the more social and social media aspect um, of, uh, of eating. Um, yeah. So I think influencer marketing and generally just us sharing on social media everything that uh, we eat along with every single thought that we have about anything um, is impacted uh, the way we behave as consumers in in a very, very uh, significant way. Um, Speaking of community, that, uh, right? That's exactly yeah, it. That's exactly, exactly. the, the, yeah. the things that, uh, that we buy, the decisions that we make, how we make those decisions. Uh, we were just talking about the other day about how um, in any given moment, uh, thousands of consumers can make really like split second decisions about your brand. And it's going to be this lifelong decisions that they didn't even know that, uh, that they were making because, yeah. you know, uh, they, they, uh, got the perception I either out of, uh, your brand marketing or on social media or whatever, uh, they got the perception that your brand aligns with their lifestyle. Uh, your brand aligns with their values or with their um, diet or with whatever makes them who they are. Uh, and it lends itself to this concept that in t- like today's world, uh, you don't really own your brand. Uh, your consumers mm. own your brand. They are your brand. Uh, if yeah. your brand is something that serves you know, people that follow a certain diet, people that follow a certain lifestyle, people who have very uh, certain uh, beliefs, um, that is now what 
that brand stands for, regardless of, you know, your original intention as, as perhaps like right. a brand manager at, uh, at a large CPG. And I think that will also speak to a success um, of, uh, of a brand. Um, but specifically here, uh, we wanted to talk about what uh, was the influence, I guess, what was the impact <laughs> of, uh, of consumers kind of sharing on social media, their experiences with sauces and, and dressings? Do you see things that um, have started in social media and transferred over to, to other mediums? Kind of what are your thoughts on that? Sure. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, and you might be listening to this and be like, really, we're asking about sauces and dressings on social media? Like, how prevalent can that possibly be? And the answer is, surprisingly, very. Um, there's a lot going on in terms of influence. Um, we're, you know, just to call out a recent one is on TikTok, the Green Goddess Dressing kind of revival. Green Goddess Dressing has been around for decades, um, but we're seeing kind of the younger the youths um, reviving it on <laughs> on TikTok, um, and it's seeing kind of this whole rebirth in, in consumer kitchens. So um, definitely, and I think your points about cultural influences on eating and drinking behavior are are really well noted and really um, aptly said. Um, at Tasters, we love thinking about and talking about how Pinterest is actually the world's largest cookbook. Um, and that is an Easter egg for any of you who hear us ask this question, um, maybe on a webinar or anything like that in the future. Um, so Pinterest is the world's largest cookbook because so many people are turning to, uh, you know, this form of social media and Pinterest is in and of itself, right? A social network of, of, a, of a sort um, mm-hmm. to find inspiration for eating and drinking. So that's kind of the like easiest mapped, uh, you know, food and beverage. But of course, we see this across TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, etc. Um, you know, we live in a world where uh, our kitchens are influenced by our computers like never before um, in so many different ways. Um, and trends on TikTok, Instagram, etc. Um, have a big impact on what we buy and how we make it. Um, we live, you know, again, in a world where a feta brand can sell out within days um, of their product because somebody made a feta baked pasta on TikTok and it just exploded to millions of homes, right? And, and everyone was craving this. Again, not to be too anecdotal today, but I also fell to that and, and created that same feta dish. And it was amazing, right? And, and it kind of just proved the point that it's so easy to capture these new ideas and bring them into your own your own home. Um, mm. So I think the cool thing about sauces and dressings is that they fit into this digital landscape and this trend landscape really well. Um, they're typically, but obviously not always, um, pretty easy to make. Um, they're pretty kind of low stakes experimentation. Um, if you have, you know, if new flavor, as we were saying before with the user example, you have a new flavor that you want to try, or you have a new, you know, functional health goal that you want to meet. Um, it's fairly easy to kind of whip up your own condiment or sauce or dressing in your own kitchen. Um, they're pretty convenient additions to meals, meaning you can build a meal and then add a, you know, as long as the flavors work together, add a condiment at the end. Um, so I think that, uh, we can think about sauces and dressings almost as like this gateway sauce into, do you like that I did there? Gateway, gateway sauce into innovation and trends. Um, and so, you know, I absolutely think that, um, this is a really cool way to capture, um, people who are hesitant maybe to try new things, right? Um, it's, it's a lot easier to say, Hey, I'll experiment with this cool green goddess dressing that I saw on TikTok than it is to be like, Hey, I'm going to try this really intensive feta, whatever, right? Um, or whatever the example is. Um, so I think in that way, it's it's more accessible and definitely 
that explains a lot of the trends that we're seeing around it. Um, I also think as people, and this is the kind of last point that I'll share, as people continue to hone their kitchen skills, right, which is something that we definitely saw over the course of course of COVID, um, they're looking for new ways, kind of really any way to bring in functional health into the kitchen, um, or even kitchen travel, really any of the five categories that we talked about before, right, when we talked about spicy kitchen travel, um, you know, functional health, botanicals, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. People are looking to sauces as a way to bring that into their home kitchen. And where do they find their inspiration? Oftentimes on social media. So um, definitely, I think social sharing has had a really big impact. Um, but I think, interestingly, it can tell us a lot about the direction to take innovation in the category. Um, and I think social has to be a part of that. Yeah. I think that the the way we consume social media today uh, versus mm-hmm. even uh, a couple of years ago. Um, I mean, TikTok has been popular for, for a long time, but um, the format of scrolling through, you know, either TikTok or uh, reels on Instagram uh, or there are shorts on YouTube, like there's, uh, there's this sort of format that has shifted away from you looking for something and then you seeing that thing and then the platform recommending other things to you, which is how YouTube works and how Instagram works. Um, So we're shifting more towards a model where uh, the platform just kind of like throws things at you that it believes will keep you on the platform. So it will keep showing you things that maybe you don't subscribe to, maybe that uh, they're they're different and, you know, we can... There are many books and movies about like, is that a good or a bad thing? But uh, <laughs> but that's that's how we consume social media today. So it also means that we're exposed to more things that could be um, outside of what we look for. Um, what happens to you with, uh, you know, uh, a dish that you want to make happens to me with impulsive purchases of board games. <laughs> There's, right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I will see a TikTok about this amazing, overly complicated board games, which is kind of like the category that I like. Um, and, you know, they'll, it's almost, it's almost like the same because a consumer packaged, you know, good, um, just like something that, uh, that you'd get a, at a retail, like it serves a purpose. Right. And you can see yeah. them then talking about like, this is what you will feel when you play this game. And I was like, all right, I'm on Amazon and I'm ordering this because like this is right up my alley. So it's uh, right. it's the same thing as you walking into the store, like getting it um, off of, um, you know, online um, yeah. and, and making a dish with it. So, yeah, it has a absolutely huge, huge impact. I think that's a really good point. And I think to kind of compound that, a lot of brands are actually owning their social, like understanding that consumers are turning to social media um, and it is affecting their consumption and their home, like their creation in their home kitchens. And so they are using social media really, really effectively. So influencer partnerships uh, or, you know, just having like really on it social media teams who are able to take products, um, condiments, dressings, you name it, or any other category in food and beverage and creating really, really cool social identities around it um, so that people feel connected to a sauce and a dressing, right? That's a crazy thing to say five, 10 years ago, right? If you said to someone, if you said to to your parents, right? Like, do you have an emotional connection to this sauce that randomly is like, right? Like that, what? Um, But now that's, you know, it's a normal thing to feel. Um, So I think that kind of your your call-outs about the way that we consume social media and the way that we allow it to influence us um, Mm -hmm. is is important for strategy as well. 
Cool. So I think we will end with that. Uh, some of the the trends that uh, we were talking about, not I don't think all of them, uh, depending on uh, when you're listening to this episode, um, are going to be in a report uh, that uh, we're releasing soon. Uh, we're going to try to to do more of those. But uh, a lot of these are things that you can explore for yourself on TasteWise Starter, our free edition. Uh, there's a report in there called, called Spotlight that you can just uh, type in um, you know, the flavor or ingredient or dish or motivation or whatever it is that uh, you're trying to look for. Uh, and it will give you in a few seconds uh, a full report on how that trend is uh, performing over social media, recipes, uh, menus. Uh, so there's a lot of insights and a lot of interesting things that you can gain out of it for free. Uh, so I encourage you to to go ahead and uh, sign up on tastewise.io. Uh, if there's anything that you want us to cover on either the podcast or our weekly research session, Tastewise Live, uh, that you can also sign up for on our website every Tuesday, um, you uh, can send us a note at live at tastewise.io. That's where we get all of the ideas for the things that uh, we cover on uh, on the podcast and on uh, Tastewise Live. Usually we'll try to cover the same thing um, yeah. just to kind of give you a bit more perspective. Um, and you know, the, the purpose is really to make sure that next time you have to go in and into a meeting and explain trends, um, put them in your newsletter that you're sending out to your culinary teams or whatever it is that you need to do. So it's just going to be a little bit easier for you. Uh, a lot of the stuff on these reports is exportable, so you can very neatly put it into your presentations. Uh, so if there's anything that uh, we can do to help out, just let us know. And, uh, that's what we're here for. Um, with all of that rambling of mine done uh, I'd like to thank the team that helps uh, put this podcast together um, uh, so we have of course Miriam and we have uh, Daniel who edits uh, and uh, does all the the audio work for the podcast and we have Eyal who produces it um, and uh, myself who just talks at the microphone nonsense for 48 minutes now <laughs> uh, <laughs> And, uh, that's, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's pretty much it. We hope it's been useful for you and uh, we'll see you on the next one. Bye, everybody.